New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Alan Kaufman has been compared to Jack Kerouac, Henry Miller, and even Ernest Hemingway, another soldier-turned-writer. His most recent book, Drunken Angel, is a spellbinding account of a lifelong battle with alcoholism and a magnificent rise into sobriety that takes us from the East Village park benches in New York to reciting Kaddish in Dachau. One review describes his writing as dropping like a sledgehammer, and they mean that in the best possible way. I have to agree, I'm in awe of Kaufman's talent, his utter candor, captivating humor, and his capacity to surprise and confound, all of which makes us pause before a new view of our own humanity. We'll explore some keys for our own life with Alan as he shares with us his climb from the hell of addiction and the ravages of being the son of a Jewish Holocaust survivor to being an extraordinary writer. Alan Kaufman is a Bronx-born son of a French-Jewish Holocaust survivor and a recovering alcoholic with 23 years of sobriety. He's a former Israeli combat soldier and a novelist, memorist, and poet who was instrumental in the development of the spoken word movement in literature. And he's the author and editor of many books, including Jew Boy and Matches. He's the co-editor of two groundbreaking anthologies, The Outlaw Bible of American Poetry and The Outlaw Bible of American Literature, and is the author of the memoir, Drunken Angel, Join us for the next hour as we explore the redemption of the soul of a writer with our guest, Alan Kaufman. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Alan, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for coming. I'd like to for you to share a little bit of your background and go, if you don't mind, going into your childhood and being the son of a Holocaust survivor. Um, how was that? How did your mother influence you? And what, Describe a little bit of your life growing up. Well, I grew up in the Bronx, New York. Um, my mother was a French Holocaust survivor from Paris um, who had survived the war with her mother under the most extraordinary circumstances. I mean, she spent basically five years, um, you know, uh, 
first in the presence of Nazis wearing the Jewish star in Paris as a little girl. Uh, she was once beaten in the streets of Paris by an SS officer who uh, was stepping from his command car when she crossed his path unknowingly, just walking by, and he, in outrage, kicked and beat her to the sidewalk while people just stood by and watched. And how old was she? Twelve. Twelve years old. And um, then she escaped, and uh, and there's a whole saga connected to that, um, her escape from the first big roundup in Paris in 1942, she and her mother. Anyway, um, after the war, she... Um, made her way to Caracas, Venezuela, and uh, because she couldn't find admission to the United States. And then she did uh, meet my father, who was American Bronx-born Jewish guy, third-generation Bronx, um, and uh, married him. Um, my brother and I were born, and... Um, By that time, she was in the Bronx? Yeah. They tried to make a go. They went to Caracas um, and came back to the Bronx. Um, my father made her vow that they would never leave the Bronx again. So she was a bright woman, an incredibly intelligent and resourceful woman. She started a children's clothing factory in Caracas. Uh, she brought her whole family over, the ones who survived, from Paris to Caracas. An amazing woman. Um, she had no education, really. I mean, she uh, had missed out on education as a result of the war. Um, nonetheless, she was very literate. She spoke seven languages, almost fluently all of them. And um, just an incredibly bright woman. A lot of artistic talent. And so there she was in the Bronx, you know, married to a guy who had a fourth grade education, was a street guy, a real street guy. Uh, him and his brother. I had 12 cousins on my Uncle Arnold, from my Uncle Arnold. Uh, three of them died as a result of heroin. Uh, two died in prison. One was in prison for a murder, and the other was in prison for attempted murder. The third died in his mother's bathtub with a needle in his arm um, from heroin that his brother gave him. So that was on my father's side. That was the f my father and his family. And then there was my mother, you know, an alien from another universe. I mean, really a visitor from another planet, the Holocaust planet. And um, she felt very alone, very isolated and cut off and had no one to really speak to. So I became the person she spoke to from an early age. And the way she spoke to me was through language and through physical violence. It was it was really hard to read about all the physical violence and you know that kind of expression coming from a mother to a young boy and you know the beatings that you would take um, and yet I in in your writing I don't find any resentment there uh, about it can you say something about that well um, I always loved her very much. My movement towards her was always a movement towards love. It was never a movement towards rejection or hatred. Um, even when I was drinking, even when, you know, things were at their worst, I always felt an enormous fund of love for her. 
Um, we were just very close. Um, the other thing was that I always understood, even as a child, that her situation had been different from other people because of the Holocaust. You know, there's a book that was written called The Memorial Candles, written by a psychologist who said that in each family of Holocaust survivors, there is one child who is the designated memorial candle, the one to whom the survivor imparts the experience of the Holocaust. And I believe I was the designated one. And I believe she was imparting to me her suffering and her anguish and her fury and her disappointment um, in humanity and in life um, in the only way she knew how. And in that way, you being that, that generation and, and being a writer, there, you're really expressing uh, there's a whole generation of Jewish children that have a unique upbringing and a unique view of the world. Quite right. Um, we're termed the second generation. And among our group um, are a small group of writers who are deemed, termed second generation writers. And we have inherited our own complex of interesting problems and questions and challenges. Um, Art Spiegelman is among our numbers and um, uh, Thane Rosenbaum and others. Um, and we are writers in many different languages. There was an anthology done by Norton the publisher Norton, W.W. W. Norton, of uh, us, of uh, 33 of us from around the world, called Nothing Makes You Free, um, Writings from Descendants of Holocaust Survivors. And I studied with Elie Wiesel when I was in college. You know, the challenges that face us as writers and as people are very different than the challenges that face other people, other writers. You know, we stand in the shadow of an enormous experience that is inexplicable and indescribable. And yet we feel the urge to describe and to explain. So what do we do? Right. Uh, what kind of language do we use? What can we say and what is unsayable? So we're always walking that fine line. Do you ever feel like you've, you've e expressed it or is that just... Uh a constant looking looking for that expression? It's a constant search. Um, there's never a feeling of, I've got it. And the more, in fact, one expresses it, the less one understands it. And, uh, you know, recently I was uh, in Austria at a literary festival, an Austrian publisher bought uh, the translation rights to four of my books into German. Now, the, six months ago, I took out of a drawer in my home a hundred pages of letters that my mother wrote to me at my request 19 years ago, uh, describing her experiences in the Holocaust. And when I got the first, when I had them all and I began to read them 19 years ago, I, I couldn't barely get through the first letter. It was just unbearable. I couldn't do it. So I put those letters away for 19 years in a drawer. Six months ago, I got an invitation to go to Austria. And a friend of mine said, 
this festival you've been invited to is in the Alps, which is, he said, incorrectly, right over the mountains from where your mother was last in the war and hiding from the Nazis. So why don't you go there and find out where she was hiding? So in order to find out where that was, I'd have to go through, read those letters. And so I proceeded to attempt to read those letters. It was unbearable, but I did with help from friends. And um, I had to trace her route from Paris to the south of France and then into the north of Italy. Um, I did, and I found all the various destinations she arrived at. Finally, she described one little tiny hamlet in the mountains in the north of Italy where the Italian partisans, the underground, were operating against the Nazis. And a family named the Malchio family. She said, if you ever go to De Monte, which was the town, look for a little village in the mountains called San Pans and find a family called the Malchios. When I was at the festival, I decided I was going to go there to Italy, not knowing how or what. And after the festival, I said to everyone, all right, thank you very much. And off I go to Italy. And they said, no, no, the festival organizer said, you have to come to Zurich with us first for a few days. So I said, okay. I went up to Zurich and uh, then I spent a few days. And after that, um, I said, okay, I'm off now to Italy. And, and the festival organizer, Magdalena, turned to her husband, Heinz, who was a writer, and said, Heinz, drive him to Italy. There's no way in the world he's ever going to find this place by himself. Because she looked on maps and thinks, the next thing I know, Heinz is going to drive us to Italy. We're going to hear more of that story in just one moment. I'm here with Alan Kaufman. He's the author of Drunken Angel. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Alan Kaufman. He's a poet, he's an author, he's a memorist and novelist, and his book is, his most recent book is Drunken Angel. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, pen, P-E-N dot org slash Alan, A-L-A-N dash Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N org slash Alan dash Kaufman. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Alan, we're talking about a recent trip that you had to retrace your mother's steps in during during that terrible, terrible time in in the 40s in 
Germany and all of Europe. And um, so you had someone that was going to drive you to this village that your mother mentioned in her letters. That's right. These were the Austrian organizers of a festival at which I just had appeared. And the wife turned to her husband, Heinz, she was a festival organizer, turned to her husband, who was an author, and said, Heinz, drive him to Italy. There's no way he's going to know or how to get there himself. So Heinz called up my publisher, my Austrian publisher, and spoke to the head of the house, Elias Schneider, and said, Elias, Alan's going to look for his mother's hiding place during the war in Italy. Would you want to come? Next thing you know, Elias is coming up comes up to Zurich, and the three of us take off in a car through the Alps, driving all the way through Switzerland and into the north of Italy and on our way to the border of France, of the south of France. So I realized that this was not as close as my (laughs) friend had suggested it might be. It was very far. And here I am driving in the car with these two Austrians who along the way proceed to tell me that, well, Heinz's father was this SS Nazi who had uh, killed Yugoslavian partisans and uh, others. And uh, Elias's father was in the Wehrmacht fighting it, um, at Stalingrad. So now, and you know, ostensibly his father was a Nazi too. So here I am now going to look for where my mother hid from the Nazis with two sons of Nazis. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, we got to the first stop-off place where we spent the night in Borgo San Dalmazo. And in Borgo was the place where my mother was faced with the choice at the age of 15 and her mother of staying with the Italian army convoy that they were retreating into the north of Italy or getting off. And she was in a truck with 30 Jews. And 28 of the Jews got off in Borgo San Dalmazo. We later found out that... In Borgo, those 28 plus another 350 Jews who drifted into Borgo San Dalmazo were all arrested by the local Italian black shirt militia, the Vichy, uh, or rather the um, uh, fascists, the Italian fascists, and the SS, and sent to Auschwitz and died there. My mother mysteriously and her mother decided to stay in the truck, the only two Jews, and they went on to Damante. And in Damante, they were told they had to get off because the, they were going to be fighting the Nazis up ahead. So they got off in Damante, and there they received the most extraordinary assistance. I mean, and there's a monument in Damante for all the, mem- the family, people of Damante who died fighting the Nazis, like a huge list. And um, so um, my mother went into the mountain, was kept overnight by a priest in a church. And uh, then he said, you better, you guys better go into the mountains. You'll be found, he said. They walked off into this, the most barren, <laughs> desolate, harsh mountains you can imagine. This, this lady and her daughter from Paris, and they marched and marched, and they were picked up by the Italian resistance on that road and taken to this little hamlet called San Pans and taken in by a family called the Malchios. And we found the Malchios. Oh, my goodness. Could they tell the story? Could they, Did they remember her? Or were there the stories of her and her he mother? He was the nephew. And he knew all about this. And when we got to 
San Pons, it was this tiny, tiny little village all the way in the mountains. You could barely see it. You could see why the resistance had stayed there. And um, we drove up, and I jumped out and waved my arms around and said, I'm looking for Familia Machio at this elderly lady. And she looked at me and said, like that, and she went and knocked on a door, and this guy came out and said, Machio, Machio, oh. from the family Machio. So we stood there waving arms and speaking in broken language to each other, including the Austrians. And we somehow communicated to each other everything. And uh, he showed me where my mother was kept with her mother in the hay. He knew everything. I mean, in the hay where um, they slept, where they were hidden from the Nazis. Um, later, I also, his, his aunt wrote to me on uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Using the internet in LinkedIn, Italian, that's I used great. Google Translate yeah. to respond, and, and she said, "I knew your mother," and you know this whole thing. It was very moving. What happened was, um, at the end of that meeting, we went into. He wouldn't let us go. He had to give us espresso. He said we had to drink espresso. So we went into their cottage, a very peasant cottage, smelled of babies and goats, and. They were sitting around the table. His mother's making the espresso, and she brings us the espresso. And there he's sitting. He's from the family that saved my mother's life. And here's two Austrians whose fathers were Nazis. And here's me, the son of the survivor. And I, I kind of lowered my face for a moment, you know, in astonishment that I was even there. It's like, how did I even get here? And I kind of asked my higher power, spirit, if you will, whatever, what do I do now? And I lifted up my glass. You know, we have a Jewish toast, l'chaim, which means to life. And I didn't think they would necessarily know what that meant. So I said, to life. That they knew. They all knew what that meant, la vie, to life. And they all lifted our cups of espresso. And we all toasted each other to life, that we were alive, that we had survived, you know, inexplicably, that we were here, despite what those people went through. And... Um, that we were healing and meeting each other. And I looked over and I saw my, my friends from Austria had kind of tears in their eyes. And I realized that they were making an, an effort despite that they hadn't done anything to make some kind of amends or to help me. I would never have gotten there without them. It was so all so strange and inexplicable. And, um, and we all felt a little healed from that. You know, I felt that. I felt like they were my, they had become my brothers in a way. And, you know, just to say that they were writers, they're writers, <laughs> they would have been killed by Hitler. <laughs> oh, <right. Yeah. laughs> they were the kind of writers who Hitler killed. And, um, but their fathers were Nazis and they were deeply hurt. One of them, certainly Heinz was deeply ashamed of his father. And so it was great to have that healing go on, you know, for all of us. I, I know that... Um, you have said and others have said it's it's not just the Jews and, and all the other people that were oppressed by by that whole time, that Holocaust time, um uh, that that went to the camps. It wasn't just that, it was anybody who was there, who was present in Europe during those years, nineteen thirty-three to nineteen forty-five. Everybody was affected no matter whether they ended up in a camp or escaped or whatever? Well, a Holocaust survivor is defined as any Jew who was in Europe from 1933 to 1945.
that's the official definition of a Holocaust survivor. So that involved not just people who were in camps, but people who were on the run, people who were in hiding, or even people who escaped. There were people who were in Germany or Austria from 1933 to 1936 to 37, and then were able to get out. They were Holocaust survivors because they experienced four years of horrific persecution under the Nazis. The two words that are repeatedly, you know, repeated throughout my mother's letters are fear and hunger, fear and hunger. And there's one passage in one of her letters in 1944 when she writes, when am I going to stop feeling this fear? And what's so amazing is that she's a woman at the end of her life writing these letters, but it's written in the voice of the girl who's still experiencing that fear. When will I not experience, when will I not feel fear? When will that stop? And, you know, that fear carried with her to the end of her life. You know, the war did not stop for her or the other survivors in 1945. It's it like carried a, forward. Like a, a slow burn. Even when the fire is gone, the burn continues. It was transmitted to me. Yeah. So you eventually uh, grew up in the Bronx, but you eventually uh, became an um, Israeli citizen. Uh, you, you went to Israel. What what motivated you to go, and how did you feel when you were there? Well, you know, I had a very, <laughs> I guess I was a complicated kid, and I had a very complicated um, position vis-a-vis -vis being Jewish, being the son of a survivor. You know, at the time that I was growing up, there was no discussion of the Holocaust. No one wanted to talk about that. That was considered to be a shameful thing. How could six million people allow themselves to be killed and so forth? You know, this was the narrative of the time. There was no discussion of psychoanalysis or spirituality or any of those sorts of things, those, you know, resorts or outlets that we have today. Um, there was none of that. It was simply, you know, you, your mother was in, you know, so in the war. <laughs> and it was a shameful thing. You didn't talk about it. So I had a very ambivalent feeling towards A, being Jewish, B, being the son of a survivor. And, um, and then I myself experienced growing up in the Bronx, a lot of anti-Semitism. I grew up among, in the streets, you know, it was, uh, there was a lot of other ethnic groups there fighting against each other. And I grew up having to fight back you know, being called Dirty Jew. Being, well, my memoir, my other memoir is called Jew Boy. I was constantly being called Jew Boy and Kike and so forth. Um, so I had a very ambivalent feeling about all that. And the one exception to all of that was, you know, when I saw Exodus, the movie Exodus, you know, his, what's, what's this, Jews fighting back? <laughs> Even my mother's story about the war was about Italians fighting back. I didn't know that Jews fought back. And the state of Israel, to me, suddenly seemed like a shining beacon of different response to horrific persecution. You know, it was like, wow, what's that? You know, what's this? A bunch of Jews created their own country and fought back against their persecutors. Wow, that's interesting. So it became an aspiration to go see what that is. And I did. And I ended up staying and becoming an Israeli citizen and serving in the uh, Israel Defense Forces in the IDF as a combat soldier. 
There, there, there are many stories that you recollect in, in the book Drunken Angel about that. And you went back several times, and, and I, we'll get to that in just one moment. I'm, I'm here, I want to tell our listeners, I'm here with Alan Kaufman. He's the author of Drunken Angel. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, alankaufmanauthor.com. He spells his name Alan, A-L-A-N, Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N. Look for alankaufmanauthor.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions I'm here with Alan Kaufman. He's a poet and an author of novels and uh, anthologies of of poetry and literature. And his newest book is Drunken Angel. Alan, there was there was a moment when you you have a daughter in Israel and uh, you wanted to visit her, had no money to do it, and your sponsor said, "Okay, well, make a budget and." And that's the first step. And that's right. I said I have to see my daughter year after year. And you're saying, you know, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's right yet. You don't. Her mother doesn't want you to see her, and you don't have any money. So why don't you just let go of it and see what happens? And I did year after year. And then year six of my sobriety, I said, you know, I really have to see my daughter. Because I think you're right. I said, well, how am I going to do that? I don't have a penny. One, I was still broke. You know, barely making it. He said, well, find out how much it costs to go. And so I did. I went to a tourist, a travel agent, and I sat there who did all this work for me. And then she said, so do you want to book the ticket? I said, no, I don't have a penny. <laughs> and I went home that night, and a fax came in from Berlin, the Berlin Jewish Cultural Festival, uh, asking if I would perform at the Berlin Jewish Cultural Festival with Allen Ginsberg and Kathy Acker and others and uh, paying, you know, a round-trip ticket and, and good money. And I called my sponsor and said, you won't believe this. This is crazy. He goes, no, I believe it. He goes, fax them back and ask them, uh, will they extend your return flight to Tel Aviv so that you can go see your daughter? And I did that, and they said, of course. And that's how I got to see my daughter. It was, again, you know, I use the word miracle a lot, maybe too often, but it all seems to me like a miracle. It is. It's really un- the way it unfolds, and and you, you you talk about that over and over in in your book, and and you give so many beautiful uh, share with us some of the beautiful sayings that that keep us going in uh, in twelve step programs, uh, which I I just found very comforting. To, Don't stop before the miracle Don't occurs. Quit before the miracle, I heard yeah. that often. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to believe, you know, when you're sitting there, you know, you're a year and a half sober and, you know, you, you've got barely one suit of clothes on your back and you don't know where the next meal is going to come from. Um, don't quit before the miracle. You know, I never thought I would have books published. There was something deep inside of me that deeply wanted that. 
to write and have books published, but didn't think it would be possible for me. There's just that sense of shame inside and uh, not deserving. And, uh, you know, in sobriety, all that has been proven not to be the case. Yeah, yeah. You also took a trip with someone, Helene, I think, uh, and you went, uh, she was delivering medicines. It was yeah. very interesting. Medicines were being uh, shipped to um, Palestine or to children's, tell me, but from the UN, but they were, they were being confiscated and used for weapons. What, what? Well, what happened was after the Oslo Accords, un until the Oslo Accords, which was the accords in which Israel, you know, ceded full control to the Palestinian authorities of all activities in the West Bank. Um, and really, you know, just pulled out, basically. The children in the, under the, the Palestinians were under the medical care of Israel and of Hadassah Hospital, for instance, in Jerusalem. Um, the woman, Helene, um, that you describe, um, which, by the way, is not her real name. I had to change that. She was the nurse who dealt, who, who treated these children. And she cared so much about these kids that when, you know, the Oslo Accords occurred and she lost the right to treat them and the kids were being treated now under Palestinian care, she continued to follow up and went into the West Bank to... Um, to see how they're doing. And um, she said she noticed in visiting the kids that they were beginning to um, implode. They were losing weight. They were sickly. Um, you know, we're talking about infants and toddlers. She said she, I, she just noticed this dramatic change in their well-being. So she began to ask the mothers, what's going on here? What's going on? And the mothers were reluctant to say. But finally, a couple of them said, we're not getting our medications. Now, under the new arrangements of the Palestinian Authority, the European Union was giving billions, <laughs> a lot of money. It was a lot of, I don't know if it was billions, but it was a lot of money for the health care. What she found out by knocking on doors and, you know, rattling uh, doors is she found out that the money that was being given by the EU for the medical, you know, for the medications for these kids was actually going to purchase weapons and arms from the, for the Tanzim militia, which was Arafat's personal militia. And they were fighting a running battle in Gilo. There's a Jewish area there that's right on the border. Um, they were fighting a running battle there and they were fueling that battle with the money that was supposed to go for those kids' med medications. So she was furious at this. She went and yelled at that, the Palestinian Authority. She went and yelled at the Israelis. How could you let that happen? The Israelis said, there's nothing we can do about this. And the Palestinian Authority said, we don't know anything about it. So nobody, you know, <laughs> everybody's throwing up their hands. And, and in the meantime, these kids are not getting their medications. So what she decided to do was purchase the medications herself out of her own money and then drive down the most dangerous corridor in the war. It was a sniper zone where people were being shot on a daily basis. And in, she drove in this rapidly little car 
at high speed down this road. The Israelis turned the other, you know, they looked away and let her bike go through. And she was delivering um, to great danger to herself medications for these kids. So when she told me the story, I said, can I go with you on one run? I want to see what it's like. <laughs> it was the most, and I've been in the military. It was one of the most harrowing experiences I've ever had in my life. She's driving down this road. It's a sniper zone in this rapidly little car with a trunk full of, you know, baby foods and nose drops and whatnot. And the only other vehicles are armored vehicles racing down the road, military vehicles racing to get out of the sniper zone. And one TV crew you know, you know, <laughs> marked, you know, T, television, TV, and, uh, and her. And uh, the day before, she told me the day before she had seen a, uh, a vehicle shot, you know, shot with weapons, um, like 10 feet away from her, she was driving. So anyway, we went and she delivered her medications to the kids. You know, it was, to me, it was a remarkable act of heroism. Heroism, exactly. Just incredible woman, yeah. I, I I do want to get get to an, another part of your life, and that's your your life in um, you in the poetry. There was one particular poem you that you wrote called "Emphysema Man." Uh, your sponsor also now now that you've you've been sober from alcohol, uh, he's telling you, okay, now you got to quit smoking. <laughs> well, he walked into my room one day when I was about a year sober, and I was just lying there um, on this little bed in my room, place filled with smoke and cigarette ashtrays heaped with cigarette butts. And uh, he said, how's it going in here? <laughs> and it, well, yeah, I could barely get up. I was so knocked flat by tobacco. So he said, you might want to think about giving up cigarettes and that was a hard one. I was so, I was, the cigarettes were holding down so much anger and disappointment and I don't know what. And um, at that time, I was visited by a poet friend of mine who I said to him, you know, I, I'm really having a hard time. I can't write. Cigarettes are like a part of my writing process. I have to have a cigarette in my hand. He said, well, why don't you write a poem about giving up cigarettes? So I did. I wrote a poem called The Last Emphysema Gasp the Marlboro Man. Um, when I performed that at Cafe Babar in San Francisco, in the audience was a reporter for the San Francisco Weekly with a photographer who photographed me and then interviewed me for an article that appeared in the centerfold uh, of the San Francisco Weekly. That was read by an Austrian writer who got interested in what I, the kind of poetry I was doing and approached me and, um, and got me invited to my first performance tour in Germany. Another part of your life where you, um, now where you're back in the U.S., lots of things have happened, and we're going to go to your re uh, recovering alcoholic. You have gone through a, a couple of sponsors, and um, at some point, I think it was your sponsor, not Ray, but the one, Eugene, uh, your sponsor, and I don't know if those are real names either, but he, you're thinking you'd like, a, you're, you're, you're sober, 
and you're in sobriety and you think that you might want a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and he was cautioning you about that. And he said, no, no, get a cactus or get something very simple. And it turned out you got a goldfish. Mm. And I, 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 just, I just wept over the story of Deb the goldfish. Can you, can you describe Deb? Yeah. um, Well, as you said, um, I thought I was ready for a relationship. I was in early sobriety. And he said, you know, I think you should start out with something a lot simpler than than an actual woman, human being. So like what? And he said, well, he said, you know, if I could recommend an amoeba, but... (laughs) (laughs) Very simple. Because you have to care for (laughs) the other. So uh, how about... starting out with a goldfish. Let's see how you do with that. So, um, you know, I was offended, but I <laughs> followed the suggestion and I got this goldfish. And, you know, to my amazement, you know, I was extremely lonely. I was living in a little room in a boarding house by the lower, in the lower eight, right by the projects that used to be there. In San Francisco. Yeah, on yeah. Hayden Webster, there were projects and I was living right across the street from them. And, um, you know, it was a, a time of, you know, terror and beauty and, you know, revelation. I was newly sober. I was just rediscovering life for the first time, really, you know, through clean and sober eyes. And also discovering feelings in myself that I had been completely unaware of, such as love. I mean, I felt love from my daughter when she was born, but it was ruined by my drinking and by other things. And um, so here was this little goldfish, you know, there responding to my loneliness. I would come home at the end of the day feeling lonely. And there she was. And I, I began to note that she would come drifting over to my, to my side of the bowl when I was there. And I'd sit down and she'd like hover by my side of the bowl and I would talk to her. And that developed into my, you know, proclaiming when I walked through the door, I'm home, Deb. (laughs) (laughs) I thought she's going to jump up and clap her flippers, you know, hooray, you're home. (laughs) But I felt like that was the case. Beautiful. I'm here with Alan Kaufman. He's the author of Drunken Angel, a book I highly recommend. You you really pick it up. I, I think you'll be as moved as I was. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Alan Kaufman. He's the author of Drunken Angel, as well as many other books. Um, Alan, I want to go back to that turning point for you. You were in full-on alcoholism. You were living on the streets. I mean, it was a it was a hell time, hell time, and you, and you describe it vividly in, in your book and take us there with you. And you ended up on a park bench in New York City, and you met a man, a poet, Jim Jim Brody. So uh, that was a turning point for you. Can you describe that for us, please? Yeah. Um, you know, at that point, I had divested myself, you know, which is the, you know, an action of the disease of despair. Um, I had divested myself of all things that I, I seemed to matter to me and admitted that to myself. No, they didn't matter. Nothing mattered now except to just die, drink myself to death. And uh, there was one thing, there were two things that actually mattered still a tiny little bit, but not enough to stop drinking for. One was my daughter, and the other thing was writing. And I was living in Tompkins Square Park, and one night I came back to the park, and there was a poet named Jim Brody, who was one of the New York poets with Frank O'Hara and James Chyler and um, New Ann Waldman and, you know, other people like that. And... Um, he was a well-known poet. He was someone I recognized immediately as well-known. And I was like, what are you doing here? He was dying of AIDS. He was heroin addicted. He was also a drunk. And he was dying. And he was sitting there with a 40-ouncer, which we shared under a broken umbrella in the rain with rats scurrying under our feet. And um, he said to me, you don't belong here. Um, you don't belong in the streets. You're not a street person, he said. You should not be here. He said, there's a way out. And he began to tell me about recovery. And that was the first time that I really heard that word and heard discussion of 12 steps, 12 step programs and such. Um, and it was like a beacon, but I still didn't know what to do. It just was my mind open to the possibility that there's a way out. They didn't know what that was or what that could be. So he was someone that you really deeply respected. Deeply. You res re respected his artistry. And deeply. here he was, like, right on the street, and he's dying. It's like, how and, did you get here? Yeah. <laughs> I was amazed. How and, did you get here? And he's telling you some truth, and it got through. It, got, it made a crack in my denial. Something cracked. A little crack, a little crack through which a little bit of light, light seeped through. And it's amazing to me, like, that little bit of light is so strong that it can kind of like like a, a, a blade of grass coming up through cement. It, it just kind of is relentless, and it just keeps kind of opening or opening. Is that Was that the case? Well, yes. I mean, what amazed me about him was, you know, we say in recovery, it's attraction, not promotion. We're not going to try to promote something. What amazed me about him was he said, I am dying. He had AIDS. And this was at a time when to have AIDS was a death sentence. I mean, no one knew what it was and you were dead. And he was a heroin addict and he was an alcoholic. And he said, I have AIDS, I'm a heroin addict, and I'm an alcoholic. So he, he named himself and he said, I'm dying. I'm not going to get out of here but you can. 
And I think it was the amaze, what amazed, it even makes me a little tearful to say it now, is that a dying man could care enough to want to save me. Beautiful. And then you, somehow you found your way, you found your way to 12-step programs. I mean, we're both crying here. You <laughs> found your way to 12-step programs, found your way to San Francisco, and and just, you know, your life unfolded from there. Uh, I'm, I'm also amazed. I mean, you're still, as a recovering alcoholic, uh, you're still, you know, you don't hold a full-time job. You're really on um, probably welfare or whatever. And then somehow one of your sponsors says, okay, two things you have to do, work the steps, and you have to write three poems every day. And right. that led you to to really helping to start a whole movement, which we now know as poetry slams. I mean, I, I guess it's what they're called now, but spoken word gatherings where people would just get together and that led you to an extraordinary invitation to go to Europe, expenses paid. Yeah. I mean, when you probably had one suit of clothes. Hardly even that. Even that. <laughs> I was picking my clothes out of the garbage on Tuesdays, the garbage pickup in San Francisco when that invitation came. And an invitation of all expense paid, even a stipend paid. To- oh, yes. No, we made a bunch of money on that tour myself and Bob Holman, who's from New York and runs the Bowery Poetry Club. Um, we, we, the two of us um, went off and toured through Germany and Austria and uh, that le- and we made good money and that led to uh, other invitations that I received, uh, you know, including Allen Ginsberg performing with him and Kathy Acker. And uh, it was one tour after the next, year after year, which led to my first full length memoir, Jew Boy, on that tour, I visited Dachau concentration camp. And when I came back from there, I was like, I have to sit down now and write the story of being the son of a Holocaust survivor. And I wrote my first book, Jew Boy. Um, And you had an extraordinary editor for that book, didn't you? Fred Jordan. I mean, the all-time, and we don't have those anymore. I mean, publishing has changed so much, Uh in my opinion. And and that all-time editor. uh, When I was growing up in the Bronx, there was one, I mean, two editors I knew their names was Barney Rossett, the publisher of Grove Press, and Fred Jordan, who was the managing editor of Grove Press. And the reason I knew that is there was a magazine that that publishing house published called Evergreen Review. And those two names were always the names cited on the masthead, Barney Rossett and Fred Jordan. And I knew them from picking those magazines out of secondhand magazine stores in the Bronx where I used to go scrounging for comic books. And um, I also knew that Grove Press were the publishers of all my heroes, Jack Kerouac, uh, Hubert Selby Jr., uh, you name it. I mean, they were, you know, John Janay, Sartre, Samuel Beckett. Um, All my heroes were published by them. And then to my astonishment, Fred Jordan um, bought Jew Boy and published it in hardcover, and then turned around and got Bonnie Rossett to publish it in paperback. And so here are my two heroes uh, from my childhood were publishing my book. And then they asked me, who do you want on the back of the book as quoted? And I said, definitely Hubert Selby Jr. from Last Exit to Brooklyn, because that was the book we all read, the kids all read in the Bronx. And next thing you know, he's quoted on the back. And then 
Hubert Selby Jr. sends a letter to me saying, if you ever want to talk, give me a call. And I call him in Los Angeles. They called him Cubby Selby then. And in the course of the conversation, he says, just let me ask you something. He's passed away now. Let me ask you, are you in recovery by any chance? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, because I am too. I've got 25 years sober. I was, I was absolutely stunned. One, one last story. Um, that we have time to fit in here. I mean, there's so much. I just, I want to cover so much. But but there was a moment uh, when you were visiting your daughter in Israel, and there was a moment when the two of you, she showed you some of her poetry, and you did a joint reading. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to, to describe that to us. Well, um, I had a reading that was booked um, by Edgar Carrot, who's a big writer in Israel, in Tel Aviv, in this club. And she was 13 at the time, and she showed me her poetry, and we began to kind of translate it, you know. And um, it was remarkable work. Some of it was poems that were angry at me. (laughs) And uh, so I said, you know what, why don't you come and read with me on stage? And she did, and she completely knocked down the audience. I mean, she blew them away. She was just, so I was reading in English. She was reading her poems in Hebrew, and I was reading mine in English. And we had this remarkable experience. The audience just were thrilled. They loved it when she was raging at me in one poem, Daddy this and Daddy that. And I just, I loved it too. And um, we had this wonderful kind of coming together over poetry. And a week later, a suicide bomber tried to drive his car through a club next door and blow it up. So we had this moment of, you know, possible peril together, too. Years later, when she was in the Israeli army herself, she said, I have to see you. There's something urgently important that I have to tell you. And I flew to Tel Aviv and said, what is it? And she said, Daddy, this is really important. I said, okay. She said, I'm gay. I said, oh, well, perfect. I live in San Francisco, so <laughs> your street cred is just shot way up. <laughs> and she couldn't believe how nonplussed I was, how I was, you know, I was actually thrilled for her. So I'm so happy that you you know who you are and um, and you have my full support. She was completely stunned by that. She was like, you, I can't believe that you're being so okay about this. And you've always been, somehow there was like a connection with her ever since she was a baby, something really a strong bond that never never got ripped. Not for me. Yeah. And uh, I did feel that from the first moment that we had this special bond. Right. Absolutely. Right. Oh, I, I want to go on and on. Uh, Alan, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on New Dimensions. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Alan Kaufman. He's the author of many, many books, uh, uh, some uh, memoirs, Jew Boy, and a novel, Matches, and then two groundbreaking anthologies, The Outlaw Bible of American Poetry and uh, The Outlaw Bible of American Literature, and then his newest book, also a memoir, Drunken Angel. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, alankaufmanauthor.com. He spells his name Alan, A-L-A-N, Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N. Look for alankaufmanauthor.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3488. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.